0: Eternal Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have been with us and guided us through the Bible over the last, well, it's been more than two years now that we've been looking at this survey of the scriptures and find that we can never wear out the scriptures. There's always more to learn from your inspired word. And we are so grateful and so thankful that you have given that to us And as we look at the Revelation, look at Revelation now, the culmination of your revelation to your servants, we ask that you would help us to comprehend it, understand what you have for us, and then to take that inspiration out to the world and proclaim the wonderful plan that you have for mankind. For those who will avail themselves of it, those that you have specially called, chosen to be part of that great work. We ask that you would help us, guide us in our understanding now in your name, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, we're looking at the Book of revelations as part seven now. We've reached the conclusion of our Survey of the Bible. We began this back clear back in January of 2019. So it's been more than two years that we've been going through this, and it's been quite a quite a grand adventure, hasn't it? As we have looked at each of the books that God has given us in His inspired word. So now we look at the book of Revelation, part seven. Jesus Christ, our triumphant King. We're going to look at the wonderful revelation that he has given us concerning the colonial kingdom. Last time I showed you how in the beginning of the church, of the church age, the church did hold a pre-millennial view of the millennial kingdom. And then I showed you how in the fourth century that began to change. And throughout much of church history, the institutional church has believed in a, in a in an amillennial position. But I showed you, I began showing you scriptures from the Old Testament primarily. And we looked at the fact that this millennial kingdom will be an earthly kingdom. We are told that we shall reign on the earth. We also looked at scriptures in the Bible that tell us about the preeminence of Israel during this millennial kingdom. We looked at scriptures in the Bible that tell us about the roles of David and of the apostles in this millennial kingdom we saw promises from the Old Testament that the land promises given to Israel will be fulfilled, will be realized. And we also finally looked at promises from the Old Testament that showed us, that showed us how this period of the millennial kingdom will be, will be a time of economic prosperity, a time of unprecedented economic prosperity, time of unparalleled economic prosperity. Tonight, we're going to look at scriptures that show us that the future millennial kingdom will be a time of peace, such as the world has never known. There haven't been many years since the creation, since the thousands of years that man has been on the earth that have been characterized by peace. Most of the time there is a conflict, a war going on in some, at some place in the world. And many times there are conflicts wars going on in many places in the world. But the millennial kingdom will be a time of peace. This is a, a passage that we read from Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, we often read this at Christmas time. But there's something important that we should notice in this passage. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Well, there hasn't been peace. As I said, in the thousands of years that, that man has been on the earth. There has not been peace up since the first coming, but there will be peace after Christ's second coming. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall meet their swords in the plowshares and their spears in the pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. In Micah 4.3, He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall meet their swords in the plowshares and their spears in the hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That same expression, beating our swords in the postures that we see in Isaiah, we also see in Micah. Zechariah 9 10. I will cut off the chariot of from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 19. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Throughout much of history, Egypt and Assyria and Israel have not been on good terms, but this prophesies a time when they will be united. Not only will there be peace among men, but even the nature of the animals will be changed at this time. Isaiah 11 tells us the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the cat and the lion and the padded calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Isaiah 65, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the servants' food. This shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mouth, says the Lord. This time of transformed relations among people, transform relations between people and animals has been the, the subject of artists throughout history. They have painted depictions of this time of unprecedented peace among men and between men and animals. And I will make for them a covenant, we are told in Hosea 2, on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will make you lie down in safety. Ezekiel 34, I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. There will also be great topographical changes to institute the millennial kingdom. Isaiah 2, two, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. I think that lifting up of the mountain of the Lord is both figurative and literal. It will be lifted up in the sense that it will be the most important place on earth, but I think it will also be The result of a topographical change that it will be lifted up and that the area around Jerusalem will be a flattened plain, but Jerusalem will be exalted. Zechariah 14.10, the whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hanano of now to the king's wine presses. This is from Ezekiel 47, and we'll talk. I'll talk more about Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 later on. Ezekiel 47 tells us, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. So the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. I'll talk more about that later. And he said to me, this water flows toward the Eastern region and goes down into the Arba and enters the sea, in the Dead Sea, as it is called today. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be many fish. There are no fish in the Dead Sea today. When this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live when the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Angeti to Aneglem. It will be a place where the spreading nuts. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish on the Great Sea, meaning the Mediterranean Sea. The millennial kingdom will also be a time of absence of sickness. And we have not seen the absence of sickness since the fall of man, have we? We've seen sickness throughout the centuries. But the millennial kingdom will be a time of the absence of sickness. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see, Isaiah 29, Isaiah 35, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf are unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the waters and streams in the desert. Isaiah 33, and no one it will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Ezekiel 34. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the straight and I will bind up the injured. Jeremiah 34, I will restore health to you. Your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. That will certainly be the case during the tribulation period. But God promises that he will bind up the wounds of all of those who survive the tribulation. Isaiah 65 No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days, for the young man shall die a hundred years old. The monia kingdom will also be a time of full knowledge, and many peoples shall come and say, We are told in Isaiah 2 3. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the house, mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding and those who murmur will accept instruction. Isaiah 29, 24. That is certainly not the case today or has it been the case in the past that the world at large will accept God's instruction. And the Lord will make himself known, we are told in Isaiah 19. The Lord himself will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. There has not been the case in the past nor is it today. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make Verses 33 to 34. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That has never happened in the past. It's not happening now. It will happen in the millennial kingdom. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That expression is also used in Habakkuk. There will be a pure language during the millennial kingdom. For that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure language that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. 7 9, 3, 9. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. will be a time, this millennial kingdom, a time of instant guidance. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Remember now that during this millennial kingdom, the saints, those of us who are believers, will reign on the earth. So it's very possible that we will have a part in this, that we will be assigned some mortal humans to guide in the way and to show them the correct way of God. It will be a time of instant answer to prayer. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. And it will be a time of repurposing a fast day, There are many fast days that Israel has observed. The first fast day that they observed was Yom Kippur. And then other days were added throughout Jewish history, fast days, Um, for example, the, the fast day on the 9th of Av when the temple was destroyed, both the first temple by the Babylonians and the second temple by the Romans also destroyed on that day. So we see, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh, that's Yom and the fast of the 10th shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful peace. So these fast days will not be forgotten, but they will be totally changed. They won't be fast days anymore. They will be days of cheerful peace that will happen in the future of the new kingdom. Now, I wanna spend the remaining time that we have together talking about Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. This is a much neglected area of scripture. I can understand why a millennialist would prefer not to talk about this section of scripture because they have to spiritualize it and allegorize it and tell us that it doesn't really mean what it says. But even some premillennialists are made uncomfortable by things that they read in the this portion of Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 48. I would urge you not to do that. Just let God be God and let him speak to you what he has to say to you. Don't fall into the trap of the amelonios and say, well, it it can't really mean what it says because I just feel uncomfortable. I am just made to feel uncomfortable by this. Well, be patient, give it some time. Let God speak to you through these chapters through this portion of scripture. First of all, let's talk about the promised land. The, this portion of the book of Ezekiel talks about the promised land and what is going to happen in the future. On that day, the Lord, is it, going clear back to Genesis 15, 18, we, re, we read about this promise, which is ultimately fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of the river Euphrates. Now, when it talks about the river of Egypt, the first thing that comes to people's minds is the Nile River, but I don't think that's what it's talking about. Um, it's, it is talking about the Wadi El Arish in the in the Sinai Peninsula, which has been the historic traditional boundary between Egypt and Israel. And then the great river, the river Euphrates, Whenever the Bible talks about the river, without not any qualifier, just the river, it's probably talking about Euphrates. So these are the general boundaries of the promised land, from the river of Egypt, the, the Wadi El to the river Euphrates. And so that is the, the river or the brook of Egypt, the, the Wadi El Arish, you can see in, on this. Map here that that is the traditional boundary between Egypt and Israel, not the Nile River, but the Wadi Elarish. Here's another map of that southern border area, showing the the Brook of Egypt, the, the Wadi Elarish, which demarks the boundary between Israel and Egypt. Now, this section of Ezekiel talks about how the land apportioned to Israel will extend to the river Euphrates, and this is how some people interpret that. They think that the land of Israel will extend straight east all the way to the Euphrates river, and of course, if that is the case, then it will take up much of the land that uh, is currently occupied by Iraq. I don't think that that is a correct understanding of what the scriptures are describing. And here's why I don't think that. Because you, you remember that Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land he was only allowed to view the promised land from Mount Nebo. On the right side of this map in the red, you can see where Mount Nebo is located. Well, if Moses was viewing the promised land from Mount Nebo, then according to this understanding of the, the promised land extending all the way to the Euphrates River directly East, then Moses would have already been in the promised land. But the Bible tells us that he wasn't in the Promised Land, so that's why I don't think that we should interpret the scriptures that way. I think that when it talks about Israel extending from the the brook or the river of Egypt, the Wadi El arish all the way to, to the Euphrates River, it's talking about extending to the Euphrates River up to the northeast. Not straight east, but to the northeast. That because the headwaters of the Euphrates River are up there to the northeast. There's a, another map of Ezekiel's vision showing this boundary, What with the along the Euphrates River being up to the northeast, and yet another map showing that same thing. So the, the boundaries of the of the tribes of Israel don't go straight east to the They go up to the extend up to the northeast. There's another map showing not only the allotments of the of the 12 tribes, but also showing the portion there where the where the city of Jerusalem is located and the Temple is located, where the, the priests and the Levites and their allotted portions now the location of the temple in the city this is interesting to me at least at the present time the temple mount where the temple stood first and second temples is located in Jerusalem in the old city of Jerusalem but if we look carefully at what this passage from Ezekiel says about the millennial temple and the millennial city, we find that the temple is not located in the city of Jerusalem. See, in this diagram here, you can see how the sanctuary is to the north of the city of Jerusalem. So there are two possibilities, and I can't definitively definitively tell you which is which, but either the temple will be located to the north of where the Temple Mount is today, or the temple will be located on the Temple Mount and the city of Jerusalem will be south of where it is located today. I can't tell you definitively which of those is the case, but I tend to think that the temple will be located north of where the city of Jerusalem is. Because of the, the distances involved in this information that we are given in the of Ezekiel, the, it seems like the temple will probably be located where the tabernacle was located at Shiloh when Israel first came into the promised land. So that is the, the direction that I lean today that um, the temple will probably be located to the north of the city of Jerusalem where the tabernacle was located when Israel first came into the promised land. And then the city of Jerusalem will be located approximately where it is today. So notice that in this diagram, there is some land to the right and to the left that is apportioned to the prince. And I'll talk a little bit more later about who this prince, this mysterious prince is. This is a a diagram showing us the, the history of of the tabernacle and the temple and the ark throughout history. So it shows us that the tabernacle was located at Shiloh north of Jerusalem, and then David, of course, took the Ark to Jerusalem, and then his son Solomon built a temple at Jerusalem. That's what we call the first temple. But you can see on this chart that the tabernacle actually stood 485 years, I think it says, whereas the first temple and Jerusalem only stood for 374 years so the the Ark of the Covenant was actually at Shiloh for longer than it was in Jerusalem then of course the temple was destroyed and there was a time of exile and then when Israel returned a second temple was built and then Herod the Great shortly before the time of Christ greatly expanded it, refurbished it. He enlarged this platform area that the temple stood on to make it flat. So there was a large uh, closet around the temple. And then that temple was destroyed by the Romans. And then at the present time, we see the Dome of the Rock, which the Muslims built on that site. And at some point in time, we believe that there will be a future tribulation temple, which the Antichrist will inhabit. And then when Christ returns, that will be destroyed, and we will see the millennial temple. It is important to note about these various tabernacles and temples the Shekinah of glory, the presence of God. The Shekinah of glory was in the tabernacle it was in the first temple, it was not in the second temple. The temple that stood at the time of Christ. When the Romans destroyed the temple and they went into the Holy of Holies, they were surprised to find that there was nothing in there. The Ark and the Covenant had, had disappeared. Uh, shortly after the time of the first temple and of course there are many different ideas about where the Ark of the Covenant was taken to where it went to everything from the Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, in Indiana Jones to the idea that it's hidden somewhere on Mount Nebo or it's in uh, Ethiopia there are many different ideas of course the kind of glory is not in the Dome of the Rock, nor will it be in the future temple of the Antichrist, but it will be once again returned to the millennial temple. Once again, this is the place where the tabernacle stood. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there, the land lay subdued before them. When Israel first came into the promised land, The tabernacle was at Shiloh This is um, A diagram of the Temple And the court surrounding the temple It is prophesied in this section Of Ezekiel And you will notice That there is a river That comes out from under the temple And goes To the east But then at some point It turns to the south. This river that flows from the temple. Remember what I told you before about in the millennial kingdom the the uh, temple will not be located in the city of Jerusalem. It will be located to the north of Jerusalem and that is why this river must at some point turn south and flow to the city of Jerusalem because in Zechariah uh, Zechariah 14 verse 8 we are told that this river divides and part of it flows to the east and it ultimately runs into the Dead Sea which will no longer be dead during the millennium and part of it flows to the west to the uh, Mediterranean Sea we're told that in the book of Zechariah so once again this is this is the way that we study scripture. We we put all of the scriptures together. We don't just base our conclusions on one verse or one passage of scripture, but all of the relevant passages of scripture. The glory of the Lord departs, as I mentioned, from that first temple. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple. That is described in Ezekiel chapter 10. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. Ezekiel chapter 11. So the Shekinah glory, the glory of the Lord departed from the temple. It paused temporarily over the Mount of Olives and then it left. And of course, when Christ returns, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives this kind of glory will return to the millennial temple. The glory of the Lord returns. Ezekiel 43. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the Lord of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So that glory of the Lord, that Shekinah glory that departed from the first temple, will be returned to the millennial temple. So a major section of the the book of Ezekiel is given over to a temple that they probably described in detail its dimensions, priesthood, worship, sacrifices, and ritual. So this is why the um, millennialists don't really dwell too much on Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 because they they don't know what to do with them. They have to spiritualize it, allegorize it, and say that doesn't really mean what it obviously says. It has to mean something else. Other prophets also wrote about our future literal millennial temple, Isaiah did, Daniel did, Joel did, Agai did. So Ezekiel is not the only one who prophesied about a future millennial temple. If you look at these scriptures honestly and clearly, you will see they can only refer to a temple that will exist in Jerusalem when God in the person of Jesus the Messiah physically dwells on earth in the midst of his people. Some try to relate Ezekiel's revelation to Solomon's temple. Others say it refers to Zerubbabel's temple, built after the Jews returned from Babylon in the fifth or sixth centuries BC. However, the dimensions, priesthood, and ministry of Ezekiel's temple differ completely from the other two. And this is one of the reasons why some Jewish people were, were reluctant to accept the book of Ezekiel into the scriptural canon because the ministry in the millennial temple is different. It's slightly different from that given in the Torah. So they were reluctant to accept it. But all this tells us is that this does not refer to the first temple or the second temple or the temple of the Antichrist. This refers to a future millennial temple. The others teach that Ezekiel depicted the ideal temple that Israel was supposed to construct but did not. No text in scripture comes close to validating this interpretation. There's no, no indication in scripture that this, this is what could have been but will never be. Today, it is becoming increasingly popular to spiritualize the biblical text and teach that the temple in Ezekiel symbolizes the spiritual blessing being fulfilled in the church. Again, nothing in scripture gives any credence to this position. Nor is this temple in Ezekiel, the tribulation temple? A temple will exist during the future tribulation, but it will be an ungodly one that does not correspond to the godly temple in Ezekiel's prophecy. The tribulation temple is the temple that will be inhabited by the Antichrist. So to what temple does Ezekiel refer? The interpretation that makes the most sense is that this is a future literal temple that will be built in the millennial kingdom. Such a temple is consistent with Ezekiel's earlier prophecy that that God will set his sanctuary in Israel. A temple will be built after God has made a covenant of peace with Israel in the millennium. The temple's purpose will be sixfold. It will, one, exhibit God's holiness, Two, manifest God's glory. Three, be the Messiah's dwelling place. Four, be the location from which the Messiah will govern earth from David's throne. Five, provide a place where people will offer sacrifices to God in worship. And six, house a river flowing from under the threshold to the Dead Sea, providing life-giving water to vegetation throughout the negative. This temple will be unlike any other in Israel's history. The outer dimensions of the temple complex will form a square, 175 feet across and in length. The temple faces east, as did the Tabernacle and temples of Solomon and the Exile. So these are some artist's impressions of what the temple and the the courtyard around it, the temple complex, of what it would look like. The Book of Ezekiel only gives us the dimensions of, of the temple, the buildings of the temple. So artists uh, give their impressions of what this might look like. We're not really giving any details about the, the decoration or what exactly it looks like, but so that's why the Depictions that you will see look kind of blocky uh, squared. Because we're only given the dimensions, we're not really given the the details of what they look like. So you you can see that the front of the temple, the front portion of the temple is, is very high compared to what it was in the first and second temples. There are three gates into the temple precinct. To the, to the uh, lower left, that's that's East. And so there are gates to the North and the East and the South. There's no gate on the West. And what we in front of the temple, the, the colored object that you see there, that's the altar. There's another depiction of the temple the temple precincts. Um, It's interesting that in the corners, the four corners of the temple, there are uh, kitchen facilities. Why are there kitchen facilities? Well, because a portion of the offerings are eaten by the priests. And there's also one sacrifice that the people eat people take up. So there are various rooms to accommodate that in the temple, in the temple precincts. There is yet another diagram of the temple. Behind the temple there to the to the right there which is to the west you will see a, another structure and, and the priest quarters are there the if we look at c after the uh, on three sides of the temple you'll, you'll see c and these are chambers and it's very possible that these are chambers that will be used by the people who come to the temple. To partake of the sacrifices. Here's another illustration of the temple artist impression. I like this one, uh, not only because it's 3d and and color, but it also depicts something that most of the illustrations don't show. And that is the river that flows from under the temple and close out of the temple here's another diagram of the temple this, this one is from a different orientation because uh, east is to the bottom of this illustration once again you can see that the temple and the altar in front of it as well as the, the gates to the to the north and east and south there's another diagram of the temple and once again this one does show the river flowing from the temple it's kind of ironic where this comes from because this actually comes from one of the uh, appendices of the Lutheran study bible (laughs) which is kind of ironic because they don't take the uh temple that Ezekiel described literally. They don't believe that there will be a future millennial kingdom. Here is yet another diagram of the temple showing that river once again, a river of life flowing from the temple. And we see once again those high buildings, the high structures by the gates into the temple precinct. And there's once again kitchens at the four corners. And other chambers, which I think will be used by people who come to the temple. This is another diagram oriented where the temple is oriented towards the east. To the right there. Around the temple. In the temple precinct, there will be a large plaza area, about a mile on each side, almost a mile on each side, and I think that this will be needed to accommodate all of the people who will be coming from all over the world to visit the temple, especially at the time of Sukkot, as we read about it in Zechariah 14, the time of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, in the fall. The temple building itself will be 172 feet, nine inches long and 105 feet wide. It will be 170 feet, six inches high on the east and 72 feet, six inches elsewhere. So it will be quite tall on the the east that high portion of the temple. There's a a depiction of the temple And I'll mention something about that that altar that later on that further confirms that this is a millennial, this is a future millennial temple. This cannot be the first or second temple. The wall of partition was an important feature of Herod's temple that is not known at the millennial temple. The wall of partition kept Gentiles in the outer court and prevented them from gaining access to the inner court of the temple. Why is there no wall of separation in the Messiah's temple? Paul tells us that Jesus, through his sacrificial death, made Jewish and Gentile believers into one body and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Likewise, there is no separate court of the women in the millennial temple. The explanation is found in Galatians 3, where Paul writes, for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The altar of the millennial temple will be different. I mentioned this before. I gave you a hint of this. The altar of the millennial temple will be different from that of previous temples. It will be approached from the east rather than the south. And it will be approached with a stairway rather than a ram. That is significant. Because when Israel first constructed a tabernacle and then a temple, they were specifically told that they were not to have a stairway. In Exodus 20, verse 26, And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So, they were specifically told that they were not to have steps up to the altar. And yet, there will be in the millennial temple. Why is that? It does have steps leading up to the altar. Well, the reason that Israel was not to have steps or the tabernacle or the altar of the tabernacle is because they, they were surrounded by pagan nations and they had to be careful not to copy it the pagan ways. But in the millennial kingdom, there will be no pagan nations that Israel has to be scrupulous to avoid. So at that time, there will be steps leading up to the altar. So this is just one more proof that this cannot be the first temple that cannot be the second temple. It is a future millennial temple. Perhaps the most surprising thing about the millennial temple is what will not be there. The items that you most closely associate with the temple will not exist. There will be no menorah. There will be no bread of the presence. There will be no altar of incense, there will be no veil, and there will be no Ark of the Covenant. The items that were in the tabernacle and in the temple portrayed the face of God, symbolically portrayed the face of God, the presence of God. So we had the the menorah representing the light of the eyes. We had the bread of the presence representing the mouth. We had the altar of incense representing the nose. So the items that were in the temple pictured God. But during the millennial kingdom, there will be no need for symbolic representations of the face of God in the temple because the Messiah himself will be present. The veil was rent at the time of the crucifixion. Christ made it possible to have access to God. In the millennial temple, the holy place and the holy of holies are separated by a doorway. Christ is the door. The reason that the Ark of the Covenant is missing from the future temple is because the throne of the Lord is present. The Lord Jesus, the righteous one, shall sit upon his throne as King Messiah in Ezekiel's temple. The Holy of Holies is depicted by Ezekiel 43, 7 as the place of my throne and the place of the souls of my feet. When the Messiah rules on earth, Ezekiel makes it exceedingly clear that a resurrected King David will play the major role of the king, shepherd and prince, appointed by God over Israel. He will serve under the Messiah, of course. Also an appointed prince, and I mentioned this before, will oversee worship and service in the temple. His identity is today is unknown. We don't know who this prince will be. He is not Jesus Christ, as some might believe, because he must offer a sin offering for himself. And of course, Jesus doesn't need to do that. Many scholars speculate that David is the prince because he is so designated in other millennial kingdom passages. However, this seems unlikely because the prince appears to be a human being. David will be a sinless resurrected saint. So we don't think that I don't think that David will be the prince either. I think this prince is some unknown at this point person who will live during the millennial kingdom. The prince's duties are spelled out in Ezekiel 45. 9-46-18 Ezekiel 44 4-31 provides information about the dress demeanor, and duties concerning the priests in charge of the temple only Levites from the son of Zadok will be ministering priests because they alone obeyed the Lord but other priests and the children of Israel went astray this is the part of the millennial temple that some find Confusing or even distressing. that reinstitution of animal sacrifices. The amillennials are, are, are troubled by this, but even some premillennials are troubled by this. So let's let's take a closer look at this. The author of Hebrews is not saying that all sacrifices are forever banned but that no sacrifice can take the place of Jesus supreme and complete sacrifice for sin and its consequences. Hebrews was 9, 13 through 14 where the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God animal sacrifices could never remove spiritual guilt from the offerer. But it is equally erroneous to say that the sacrifices were only teaching symbols given by God to prepare the nation for Messiah and his infinite covenant. Such instruction and symbolism surely was a major purpose in the sacrificial system, but it was not the exclusive purpose. Scripture tells us that something really did happen. Something really was accomplished when an offerer brought a sacrifice to the temple. was not the same when he left the temple as when he brought the sacrifice. Let's take a closer look at the other purposes of sacrifices both in the Old Testament and in the future millennial kingdom. The millennial temple's main objective will be to provide a place of worship for Israel and the gentile nations that will be similar to yet distinct from that under the old Levitical system. Jews and gentiles alike who have mortal. Bodies will bring animal sacrifices. Amaltheists, of course, reject this idea. This is a quotation from uh, Mr. Hokama, who is an Amaltheist. The biggest difficulty with taking these details of a future earthly volume literally is occasioned by the animal sacrifices. Will there be any need to keep an offering? keep on offering bloody sac- animal sacrifices after Christ has made his final sacrifice to which the Old Testament offerings pointed forward. The usual dispensational answer to th- this objective is that during the millennial millennium, these are to be memorial sacrifices without expiatory value. But what would be the point of going back to animal sacrifices as a memorial of Christ's death after the Lord himself has given us a memorial of his death In the Lord's Supper. This is what Anthony Hokam asked. He says, Well, why do we need uh, sacrifices as a memorial if we already have the Lord's Supper? But read 1 Corinthians 11 carefully. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the implication is that once the Lord does come, that we will no longer have the Lord's Supper; that we will have a different memorial. There are many different kinds of sacrifices. There's a burnt offering and a sin offering, a trespass or a guilt offering, a grain offering, a drink offering, and a peace offering. The peace offering is, is the one that I want to focus on it. This type of offering was voluntary. The other the others were required you had to bring an offering when you committed an offense But this type of offering is voluntary. It was the only type of offering which the owner of the animal offered partakes of the meat and shares it with others. So I mentioned the the kitchen facilities and the other uh, chambers there at at the future millennial temple. The peace it represents is not one made with God, is not one made with God, but an expression that one has all was already at peace with God. So it's not that the sacrifice brings about peace with God. It's a celebration of the fact that you have peace with God. Many premillennialists also struggle with this concept. They ask: if Jesus' sacrifice is the only application once for all sacrifice to expiate sin why should animal sacrifices be offered during the morning? Surely they can't be for sin. When they ask this, it is an indication that they really do not understand the nature of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Sacrifices in the Levitical system did not remove sin. If they did, there would have been no need for Christ to come and die for our sin. We can simply continue to offer sacrifices, provided, of course, we have a temple, which we do not, But that's beside the point. As Hebrews 10.4 tells us, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The Old Testament sacrifices could not remove sin and were never intended to do so. It is serious business to come into the presence of God in a sinful state. Habakkuk 1.13 says, of oh God, you are of your eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on iniquity. Deuteronomy 4.24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 29, for God is a consuming fire. And that goes that same idea. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10.31. Unregenerate people were in need of protection from the immediate wrath of the holy God that animal sacrifices provided in accordance with their divine design and function. The Old Testament sacrificial system provided a temporary covering for sin so that God could dwell in the midst of Israel, in the tabernacle, and in the temple. Likewise, animal sacrifices offered in the millennial temple will be needed to cover the worshippers' uncleanness. Why? Because God will be dwelling on earth in the midst of sinners living in their natural, unresurrected bodies. There will be people in the millennium who are unconverted, unregenerate, who have not yet received Jesus Christ as their Savior. Without blood sacrifices, the, these impure worshipers would defile God's holy temple when they came to worship Him. And Zechariah tells us that all people in the world will be compelled to come up to Jerusalem to celebrate Sukkot, the Peace of Tabernacles. So they, the unregenerate will be required, be required to come up to the temple. Such sacrifices will be effectual and expiatory only in terms of the script provision for ceremonial and temporal forgiveness within the theocracy of Israel. What happened was temporal, finite, external, and legal, personally and immediately significant. Sacrifices in the millennium will not be a substitute for God's plan of salvation or a change the way that a person is saved, is redeemed. Future sacrifices, like those of the past, will not bring about eternal salvation. Salvation has always been and always will be through faith in Christ and his shed blood on the cross. Nor will these sacrifices diminish Christ's work on the cross. It was Christ's death, not the sacrificial system, that made it possible for sins to be permanently removed. Future millennium, do you honestly think that all of these detailed prophecies about the millennial kingdom? were essentially a waste of time and effort on the part of the prophets and on the part of God, just ink wasted on prophecies that would never come to pass. No, the future millennial kingdom is certain. A time of rejoicing in the perfect reign of our great king. It should be a source of encouragement to us and a motivation to proclaim this truth to the world. Let's conclude now with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the great hope and encouragement that the book of Revelation gives us. Not only that the book of Revelation gives us, but the prophecies throughout the Bible give us of the important plan that you are working on. Please help us to, to not minimize the coming future millennial kingdom. Yes, it is a transitional step in your plan from this present evil world to the eternal state, but it is nonetheless an important part of your great plan, the plan that you are working on. A time that when you will demonstrate that it is possible for physical mortal people to rejoice and to enjoy prosperity and peace and abundance when they follow you, when they obey you. And has, has sought so many different ways to, to try to establish utopia on earth that have all failed and they will always fail. But you are able to bring about your kingdom through your power. It is your doing, it is not something that will be achieved through the efforts of man. We thank you for this, We rejoice in it, and we ask that you will help us to appreciate it and to look forward to it, and to look forward to our part in this, this coming millennial kingdom. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, who will come in glory, and will restore your government to the earth. We thank you for this in this name. Amen.